HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program was brought to you by Eat on North. Eat on North is a casual restaurant where honest, uncomplicated food is served without pretension. Find Eat on North at hotelonnorth.com. Hi, this is Joe Campanelli, the host of In the Drink. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this half-hour journey through culinary history. And I'm sure that most of you are familiar with the author, at least her name, Zora Neale Hurston. What a great name. How could you not be familiar with her with that name, right? But her wonderful books, uh, wonderful writings. But what you probably don't know is we owe a lot to her for culinary history. And here to talk about it is the author of a new book. The new book is Zora Neale Hurston on Florida Food. And my guest is Frederick Douglass Opie. Fred is a professor of history and foodways at Babson College and uh, has received his BS and PhD from Syracuse University. Dr. Opie writes and speaks frequently about his research and the African influences of American food, especially Southern foodways. And you can read about it on his blog, Food as a Lens. He's a frequent contributor on the radio show, Splendid Table. And uh, his other books include Hog and Hominy, Soul Food from Africa to America, Black Labor Migration in Caribbean Guatemala, and Upsetting the Apple Cart, Black and Latino Coalitions in New York, From Protest to Public Office. Fred, it's a pleasure to welcome you to my show today. Oh, Linda, thank you. The pleasure's all mine. Uh, you, you did this this book on Zora Neale Hurston, and now what a lot of people don't know, and for me it's kind of a, a continuation of one of my other shows, which was all about the America Eats program and the, the project of employing or putting to work unemployed writers and sending them out in the field to try to capture regional cuisines and, and let the country know what people were really eating. Zora Neale Hurston is probably one of the best-known writers that the WPA put out there for that project. And she did something much more than just capture regional cuisines. She actually uh, was 
was instrumental in capturing a lot of the African diaspora of foodways of foods in the Southern Sea, particularly Florida. What drew you to to research Sora and write about this? Well, there's a course that uh, I teach and have been teaching for a while called African American History and Foodways. And one of the texts in the course is Their Eyes Are Watching God, which is her probably most well-known um, uh, publication. And as I was reading the book, it was on the heels of finishing and publishing my first book, Hog and Hominy. And one of the things I noticed is food was just everywhere within that novel. And my eyes just began to be trained after the publication of my first food history to see food just about everywhere. But you didn't have to work very hard to do that when you looked at their eyes were watching God. So my mind was, if it's that much in here, where else is it in her many publications? And she is quite prolific in a number of genres, including um, short story, plays, just a lot of different things that people don't necessarily know because they only know that one that one book. Right. Well, it was it was quite a book. I mean, and, and it did capture so much in that. And you're right. Food food was everywhere. Not unlike a lot of other writers. And a little spoiler: you actually presented um, to the culinary historians of New York last night, and you you said something very interesting and so so well on point and profound in in a way that people write about food usually they learn to cook excellent dishes and write about food and talk about food when they don't have food mm-hmm. right? and, and that certainly is the case in, in zora when you the more you learn about her life the more you begin to understand why food was not something that she set out to do it just happened organically because it was constantly uh, an issue with her own life mm. Uh, tell me a little bit about that life and and why she was the right match for for capturing the uh, the whole Florida food scene. Well, Zora was born in 1891 in uh, in Alabama, and her family moved shortly thereafter to Florida to Eatonville, Florida, which is an all black township. So she so that, grew- but see now that's that's very important that a lot of people don't realize and yeah. it was an all one of the all black townships that existed. She, she grew up in an enclave where. Segregation, Jim Crow, did not have a direct influence on her life until she left that township, which is a very unusual situation. So when you look at Zora, you get a chance to learn about African Americans who are very self-sufficient. They are, most of them um, own their, most of what they consume. They produce most of what they consume. So when you looked at her, um, her memoir, where she talks about growing up in Eatonville, from the date of birth, as I mentioned last night during the talk, she was born during the hot killing season. So that's a time where it was a very collective experience of whites and blacks getting together. But mostly in her case, there were only a few whites that lived outside of Eatonville, but they would also come in and participate. So she's born around food. She's talking about food. And food is not a hardship for her growing up because she's a preacher's kid. Her father, uh, as a lot of uh, ministers in the South at the time, had his own church in Eatonville, but he also was an itinerant uh, minister where he had several congregations that he would travel to on a monthly circuit. So he was doing very well financially, and she didn't uh, suffer for anything. It's after that time period, uh, later on in her life as a teenager, that when the hardship really begins. Right. Uh, it's interesting, as you mentioned, that she was born during the hog-killing season, and she actually wrote about that and captured that and, and the festivities surrounding it. And, and you also capture it in your book about her. Uh, this was no small event 
people say, oh, they're hog killing, they're, you know, they're killing hogs. No, this was, they waited and waited for this. And tell us a little bit about some of the, the activities that would surround that, um, that event. Right, so you can imagine um, several families, let's say a dozen families would get together, and all of them that raised hogs would collectively come together, corral the hogs to one area. So I have uh, images in the book of anywhere between uh, six and a dozen or more hogs slaughtered at the same time. So this is labor-intensive, to say the least. So the people would all get together. The men would process uh, the hogs. They would slaughter them. And as they begin to butcher the hogs, the different parts of the carcass would be given to the women who would begin to prepare a meal. So it's a collective activity. We will give our our blood sweat uh, towards this. And in exchange, um, the women of the of the of the group are going to make food and feed everybody. Uh, so we're going to have things like crackling, which is taking the skin of the hog after all the hair has been burned off. The skin is just going to be put in deep fried um, pots and pots made from the lard of the hog. So everything, nothing's wasted at all. Nose to tail. Nose to tail. You have hog head cheese is going to be processed, which is you take every part of the hog you, and you're going to chop it up and, and mold it into a cheese. So the process of slaughtering the hog, uh, making ham, storing those hams, salting them, storing them in a, in a, a smokehouse, all that's going to go on. And you're talking about from probably you know, dawn to dusk this process is going on. But while you're doing it, People are going to be singing. People are going to be laughing, and people are going to be eating. Eating, absolutely right. I mean, these were these were huge festivities, and not only in those communities, but in in rural farm ship, farm townships all around. I mean, you know, people would get together and do it, and that's so. That was so interesting that 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 event or activity was captured. That was something that WPA um, that they gave that. Uh, tip to a lot of the writers to try to, to try to get invited to these church socials church dinners to these you know festivities and special events because somehow they were prescient and, and knew that these these group activities were going to be important to to record and to capture and uh, Zora did a terrific job and it's included in in several of her stories and then afterwards by other writers who discovered her mm-hmm. And that is something about the juke joint. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So one of the things that you see in um, Zora's work as a WPA writer, but even before that, when she first leaves Barnard College here in New York and she goes out to do field work, she decides that she's going to track the history, the culture, and the folklore of working class people, uh, of the uh, underemployed. So she's looking at uh, turpentine workers and turpentine camps. These are, these are not people who are leaving home every day, going to a job and come back. No, they are isolated. They are working out in turpentine camps and they're harvesting uh, turpentine from um, from pine trees, harvesting that process, and they're staying in a camp-like scenario situation, barracks, uh, liking it to being on a plantation scenario. She's also looking at sawmill workers, same thing. These people are not coming back and forth from their home. They're going out to these places where they're harvesting the wood, living in a camp-like situation, and there's a commissary that the owner of this particular uh, industry is uh, who owns. So it's it's very much a debt-peanut situation where you sign on and you end up spending more money on paying back your boss for the supplies that you need from uh, clothing to 
health care to food. And then she's also looking at people in the agricultural world. Uh, each and every one of these settings I'm talking about, as I mentioned, are isolated. And it's a situation where you're working from Monday to Saturday, one day off, which is Sunday, or, or a special occasion holiday. And leisure for these people very often is a juke joint. And it's a uh, you see a facility that's run by one of the workers who at one time or another earned enough money to put together a shack. And that's probably generous to say a shack <laughs> where uh, a person who uh, who is an entertainer will go from one of these camps to the other performing. And in exchange for performing, they're going to get some wages. So they're going to have live music. Uh, it's going to be very elementary. And not until you have uh, the invention of radios and radios, uh, Victrolas and things like that. But you're talking about live music, usually guitar, banjo, very simple stuff. Um, think about people like Bloody, uh, 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 which is trying to think of the guy from Mississippi. Uh, Muddy Waters. Muddy Waters, people like that. Just a number of people. You're going to have food because food is going to be a way that the person who runs that juke joint is also going to make money. So his revenue comes from the artist, the food, and uh, the dancing that goes on. So that's the juke joint. And it's, and somebody, it's, I'm sure, passed a bottle around. Oh, oh and of, liquor. Some moonshine, right, right. And so you got you got food, liquor, and entertainment. And the food and the entertainment are intricately involved, but so is the moonshine. And it's not your general. Now, some places may have beer, but it, most times it's going to be moonshine made from anywhere because you need to be able to produce a cheap form of non-taxed alcohol that you can make a lot of money off. So right. that's that's your juke joint scenario. Right. Interesting. Uh, and, and you mentioned at, at the juke joints, I mean, you can just – you know, get pictures and see, you know, from past films and, and great books that, you know, really gave the descriptions. You can hear it. You can feel it, you know, and and especially in the hot south. But you talked earlier about these work camps, uh, whether they be, you know, for whatever industry, corn, turpentine, uh, sawmills, apples up north. I mean, and then the owner owning the store. I mean, this was so, so much part of... Not even depression era, but even earlier, and you know, uh, and then the the owner of these camps owned the company store. That song keeps going through my mind. Oh my, I owe my soul to the company store. I mean, mm. they, they pay them some wages, and then they have to spend the wages at the company store to buy you know buy back what they need. And it's it was a, a meager living, but you know, that's, it kept them alive during that era. Which, sure. What's interesting is you know after uh, uh, slavery is abolished in the South. In 1865, the predicament of the South, the problem of the South, first of all, is rebuilding the South. Right. Places like Georgia, where uh, uh, the war just absolutely destroyed the infrastructure. But the other large problem is labor. One of the definitions of being free was the ability to move and go where you wanted. So many of the, the majority, I would say, of enslaved people, when they became free people, they left. So how do you coercively maintain a, a labor force for yourself. Well, you created a, a number of systems of debt penage. You created a penal system where you arrested African Americans and poor whites. So let's just be really clear on this. African Americans and poor whites uh, with all kinds of trumped up charges that you would get a ridiculous fine of you know, four or five months in jail for walking the wrong side of the street, for um, one of the laws is the labor law, where it was required that you had a job. And if you didn't have one and you couldn't uh, provide papers to show you work for, you were you were arrested. 
So these were these were quite common laws throughout the South after 1865, and many of these laws existed all the way uh, to the time of World War II. It was not until the Cold War when the uh, the Russians would put pressure on the United States and other parts of the communist world would look at the United States and see, oh, you're free in your democracy. Look at how you treat your laborers in the South. That's when these things be- began to be challenged and, uh, and changed. Right. Interesting stories, and we're going to hear a lot more about those stories and more of the food within those stories when we come back after a short break. I'm Brian Alberg, and I'm the executive chef at Eat on North in the Berkshires of Western Massachusetts. Eat on North in the Berkshires of Western Massachusetts is a casual restaurant where good, honest, uncomplicated food is served to our guests. Our restaurant is part of a hotel called Hotel on North, the newly opened boutique hotel in downtown Pittsfield. We source local ingredients from our neighboring farms and offer an all-day dining menu of flavorful American cuisine for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and on weekends we serve brunch. Our oyster bar serves up delicious shellfish and oyster samplers until 11 p.m. Check out our menu at eatonnorth.com and follow us on Instagram. Hi, we're back, and I'm speaking with Fred Opie, the author of Zora Neale Hurston on Florida food. And... uh, uh, Zora was not only just a WPA writer, as you mentioned, too. I mean, I, she, the, the WPA hired all these out-of-work, unemployed writers at that time because it was the Depression. But she had written so much before that. I mean, she was an established writer. Yeah, she just wasn't at that time. All these writers, even uh, Saul Bellow and, and a few other writers. I mean, there were some well-known names that went on not just to do work for the WPA about food for America Eats, but in a lot of the – they sent them out in the field to do – all kinds of, of writing and work, which was terrific. It kept them being able to practice their craft. Um, Zora did it with a plum, I must say. <laughs> she really, she captured so much. And uh, and unfortunately, well, you can tell us a little bit. She, I mean, she she was sort of lost there for a while until she, she was rediscovered in the, in the 20th century, basically, right? Yes, yeah, so after she's... Uh, publishes her book, The Eyes Are Watching God, and I don't have the publication dates in front of me. So she has a number of things that are, are that do extremely well as far as I think it was 26. It might have been 26 or 29. I'm not, sure I'm, about I'm that. not particularly yeah. sure. But what people need to remember is after the Harlem Renaissance, which is by the time of the Great Depression, the Harlem Renaissance has shut doors for African Americans in the publishing field. So that there, it's not that African Americans stopped writing uh, after the end of the Harlem Renaissance, but when you don't have a place to publish, I mean, that's a challenge. And so what you see is she and a lot of the other uh, noted people from the Harlem Renaissance period, they are just trying to make a living by any way they can. Some of them becoming deep WPA workers, some of them um, traveling and becoming teachers or becoming part of uh, a theater troupe. So she's doing a number of things to try to make things, you know, just work for her. And she does a lot of uh, field work. She continues to do that. But she has to depend on white patrons 
to do these things, whether it be the white patrons, whether they be from a private sector, or whether it be from the government in the form of the WPA work. Right. And as as this WPA work um, was so valuable, but when you were doing your research, how... Where did you find a lot of the material about from this? So the year that uh, I dedicated to this, so I, I had first done a um, paper for a conference, a literary conference down in New Orleans, and I put together this paper strictly using their eyes were watching God, food in their eyes were watching God. And then after that, I started to map out what I would do, and I applied for a fellowship at uh, Harvard University at the Hutchinson Center run by um, uh, Henry Louis Gates, and uh, during that fellowship year, I had access to the very immense source of, uh, of uh, documents through Harvard's library. Harvard has the luxury, and I'm sure some other schools you know, that have that kind of resource can do, that I could go on and I could find every one of her publications, every one of her books in an electronic version. Oh. So I could download the book, and then I could do word searches throughout the book. And so I found just about everything that she wrote available. Then I did uh, some research at special collection libraries at places like Yale University and then at the Library of Congress. So between the online um, resources at Harvard and the archival research at Yale and the Library of Congress, I had pretty much everything that I would need. I thought originally that the largest archival holdings for uh, Zorna Hurston's or at University of Florida at Gainesville, their main campus at Flagship University. Uh, but I never made it down there. But mm-hmm. I had more than enough. And yeah. I remember having a conversation early in the game uh, with Henry Louis Gates, and uh, I remember him saying, I don't know if you have enough to do a book. But I certainly found uh, that there were uh, plenty of things. And then I also found that the State Archives of Florida had a, a very good collection of um, food-related images. So between those images... Uh, the archival stuff, I found a lot. And then I to add to it, and that's one of the things you do at research, as a researcher, you know, you have a great idea for a project, but you have the sources to pull it off. The other thing I came upon at Harvard was the ProQuest historical uh, research, historical newspapers. And they had a whole collection of African-American-owned newspapers that you could search. So I could actually go on, search those newspapers, download them as PDFs with doing word searches. So I could isolate uh, words like collard greens, kale, turnips, uh, sweet potatoes, yams, just about anything, rice. And so I could tell the, the, the online source for ProQuest that I want you to look for this particular word in from 19... 19- 1880 to 1935, and then it would just pull up all these things. So once you know what you're looking for and you know how to do research, I was able to pull out what I wanted. And it just, it's just a treasure trove. You could pull up just recipes, or you could pull up another thing where I would say to, to people that you may necessarily think about. So Mark, Pitt, Mark Pittman just stepped down from the New York Times after doing a full col- food column for a long time. Well, you know, African-American newspapers had people doing columns, and many of us don't even realize who these people were. Mm-hmm. Well, there's just all these things that came out in the process of finding recipes for the Zora book that I learned about this whole genre of uh, black writers working for black newspapers, like the Chicago Tribune or a Chicago Defender, Pittsburgh Courier. It's just a, just a, there's so many of these newspapers that one could go into and decide how you want to write uh, and do food-related re- food research. It's wonderful. I mean, this, the online 
access to these are it's just you say well you know you'd voted a year or two to doing the research you know how long that would have taken oh, yeah. you years yeah. ago you I mean you would still be working on I this i can tell you this is uh i think book number four and this was written faster than any other one simply what you just said because i had online sources it would be i'd go gallivanting from one archive to another one state to another one country to another with this one i could sit in my office and pretty much pull up the majority of what I right. need with a couple of trips doing field work. Well, now, listeners, beware, because I have people ask me questions often about, you know, how to do research, where do, where do we do research, what sources are good resources for for different studies. And I say, listeners, beware, because just don't Google a topic. You just heard Fred say he went to Harvard, he, you know, got access to their libraries, went to Yale. You don't just Google a word. And please don't take whatever you find on Wikipedia for source, okay? You know, you have to do, you have to do your homework on on this too first before you do that. Well, you mentioned um, you know doing isolated word searches on food, and and of course these well, so many of these um, settlements were African American workers primarily, and the you know the words rice, collard greens, uh, yams, sweet potatoes come up often. What what were the workers' meals primarily? Did you get a sense of, of a lot of that? And were they cooking foods that they knew and foods of, of, um, from their past? So there's two types of uh, uh, answers to this question. One is, what are they receiving as rations? No, true. And it's, this is really important as we talked about the type of work camps these people were. They were receiving r- rations from... Uh, elite people who ran and, and organized these camps. These camps had overseers, just like a plantation, uh, just like a, a mine or anything else. And so they had rations. The rations usually were beans um, and rice. Usually beans and rice were always in there. And then salt pork, fat back, bacon, all the same things. Uh, and guess what? Remarkably, these are the same rations that you would see uh, during the, the antebellum period for the end mm-hmm. of slavery. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the same type of rations because they're inexpensive, they keep long. Uh, you would sometimes see sweet potatoes or yams. Uh, again, another ration given out during the enslavement period because they kept well and they were inexpensive to purchase. So you would see pork, uh, you know, salted, salted pork meat, rice, beans, and then you would often see cornmeal. That's, that's the, those are pretty much the same thing. Now, when they're eating on their own, and that's when you would see them supplement their, their rations. Again, a, a strong parallel to what you see during the period of slavery, where slaves went out during the nighttime and would supplement their meal, particularly if they lived near a waterway, they do a lot of fishing on their own. You see the workers in the work camps as Zora visited doing the same thing. They would catch their own fish. And then when they would have time, their leisure time, their Sunday day off or a holiday, that's when they would do a, bar- a barbecue. And so they would work to get together, uh, pitch their money in, save up their money, and they'd have a barbecue, and somebody would um, make up, mix up a batch of, of moonshine. Yeah, it's interesting because the, the, and the barbecue, and barbecue as, as is known now throughout other parts of, of the U.S., they vary dramatically. And a lot of this barbecue probably comes from um, the West Indian islands that a lot of these people originally came from, and barbecue was really just meat cooked over outdoor fires, and it was and delicious. Whatever they put on it afterwards, it was it was that cooking process, that slow cooking process over the the fires that was so great. Yeah, and that, absolutely. That's you know, uh, Zora also did work in the Caribbean, and one of the things that you see her talk about during her cha- her trip to Jamaica is how much she loved jerk meat. Hmm. Uh, she even went to the process of 
going with um, members of a, of a community to, to hunt their own boar, wild boar, which is extremely dangerous. Yeah. I mean, the, the <laughs> description of what happens Wild is, boar. They call, they call them wild for yeah. a reason. <laughs> you know, there, there's a, 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 a member of this hunting party is actually, I mean, hurt. might be the point of long-term injury. But she goes with them. She watches them, you know, catch the wild boar. And she watches them go through the process of of uh, butchering the meat, cooking the meat, and she talks about, you know, how much she enjoyed that kind of uh, jerk, uh, jerk meat. Interesting. Um, when you said the, you know, there'd be the cornmeal and the meat and the, um, and something that we didn't talk about, and that was the molasses. Again, a connection with the islands, and that would be molasses. And you referred to them, or she did, who as the three M's. That was her. That, that was to. typical throughout the South among uh, all ethnic groups uh, that, that you typically see, the Scots-Irish, the German, uh, African-Americans, is that the three M's, as meat, meal, and molasses, and the, the meat is always pork. It's always right. sold pork because it keeps well. So those are, the, those are the three that you see throughout, and how they're used may differ, but they are the most important staples in the South, meal, cornmeal, meat, pork meat, and then molasses. Uh, and molasses is one of those things that are used for a number of different ways as sweeteners. It's used as, uh, as remedies in, uh, when somebody's sick. So just a number of different ways that you see people eating that. All right. Uh, didn't want to um, end our show without talking about remedies because you are speaking actually tonight at the New York Academy of Medicine. And uh, they're do, doing a wonderful series on eating through time. And you're one of the, the lecturers um, this month. And... Uh, you're going to be talking about her research on food as remedies. Can you tell us just a little snippet of that? And then sure. You know, I, I hope those that are listening will come out. The, the focus on the talk is one of the goals of the organization is to um, eliminate health disparities. And one of the things I'll be laying out is why do health disparities exist in taking a look at the life and times of Zora Hershey and her field work to look at those causes. And then I look at solutions there's one thing to talk about a problem, but I'm a person who tends to want to talk about the solutions, about the agency of people who are marginalized. So it's one thing to say uh, that these people were treated terrible at the work camps, that they uh, were, were in debt peonage, but that's not the end of the story. Uh, they also are very much involved in their agency of creating a life for themselves within a very precarious situation. And so I talk about, I will be talking about that tonight and the number of uh, herbal remedies or, or recipes that Zora collected throughout that uh, throughout her time and throughout her career as an anthropologist and an ethnologist. So that's that'll be the center of that talk. So if you're into natural medicines uh, from the U.S. South, from the Caribbean, a lot of what I'll be talking about is rooted in African uh, remedies that uh, continued on through a process of oral history. So that'll be, I think, a, I, for me, it's, it was a very rich. Uh, part of the research for the project, it, it made it into the book, into an entire chapter I call Food Pharmacy. And I actually had to smile at the end of one. Of, I was just leafing through, and I'm just trying to capture some recipes and look at recipes, and I'm reading recipes. I'm talking about, you're talking about, or she's talking about, I don't know what she's making, um, a whole mess of greens or something, and, and cooking it and how everything's you know coming up, and it's so wonderful, and you could slap it anywhere on your body, and you're going to feel better. I, 
<laughs> I had to I had to smile because I didn't realize I was in the chapter on natural remedies. I was going to eat the stuff, you know. It sounded good. Yeah, to and me. what's really interesting is the whole idea of grains. And I, I don't know one of, one of my children. My my daughter loves broccoli. I think it was my daughter. She, she loves broccoli, and my kids are at the age of ten and twelve, where they're doing a lot of cooking themselves. And I encourage that. So my daughter made some broccoli, and then there was all this liquid at the bottom. And she went to toss it in the sink. And I was like, what? What are you doing? You know, that's pot liquor. You know, that's that's what we would call that in the South. There are so many uh, important vitamins and nutrients in that liquor that uh, people often forget when you are cooking, you don't want to take that stuff and throw it out. And those are the kind of things that you learn from Zora and from her mother uh, throughout and the cooks that she meets along her, uh, her, uh, her field work. So just the importance of taking every aspect of a food and getting the most out of it. You take that piece of bread or that cornbread and you sop up that pot liquor and don't throw it away. And, you know, it's interesting because I often talk about um, great cuisines, international cuisines, and they all usually start by as cuisines of poverty. And they all know you don't waste a thing and you take that bread or whatever source you have to sop up whatever liquids because that's that's definitely you know, good the, the other aspect that i've found interesting in doing this work over almost 12 years now is when i would go out into the field a lot of times i thought i was just doing african-american culinary history and just what you just said linda what i've found is that we're really talking about the culinary history of people from rural communities who no matter where they are they're doing what they can to consume and not waste, you know, which is a big thing in the food movement now. A lot of chefs are like, but by the way, if you work in a kitchen and a chef sees you throw something away <laughs> that could be reused or repurposed, you're going to get fired. That's right. Well, that's how these people are the same way. You'll see some of these same techniques. Yeah, excellent. Well, thank you so much for, for sharing all this information. And, and you can find more of Fred's work on fredopi.com and he, his blog, foodisalens.com. And I think it's just fascinating how we can use food as a lens to study culture and history. And thank you so much for joining me. A, a pleasure. I loved uh, doing it. And I think you are, your show is going to be one of my new uh, favorites on, on podcasts I download and listen well, to. Well, we'll send you the link and you can share your podcast. And thank you for listening. And be sure to listen in to all of our broadcasts here on A Taste of the Past at HeritageRadioNetwork.com.org. Thank you. for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.